Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It has been too long since we have spoken with David Wu of Bank of America, Maryland. David, there's any number of ways to start out. Let's start out a little more view from 30,000 feet or even uh, 60,000 feet. And that is the idea of of Janet Yellen as central banker to the world. As you mentioned earlier on television, she's got Asian movements, which import deflation, excuse me, export deflation and disinflation into the United States. Is she working with a self-inflicted tightening cycle? from other markets and nations? I think so. I think you know, the, the point is, Tom, as you know, like, you know what, you know, 10 years ago, we had the so-called global saving glut, meaning that the rest of the world, especially the central banks, bought a lot of U.S. treasuries. Bid up our price. Exactly. Bid up prices and that created a <clears throat> housing bubble. Now you have the same, basically, exactly. saving glut. Like, once again, basically, with Japanese and European investors piling into U.S. treasuries market, driving down the U.S. and driving up stocks. Where is that bubbles. bubble now if it's not housing? I, some people, like some of my colleagues in equity research, for example, at the bank would suggest mm-hmm. that equity market definitely has become one of those things, especially for the high dividend yielding stocks. They're definitely trading a valuation that's no longer compatible with any kind of fundamental justifications. It's not a proper question, but it's Monday. Can you own multinational, fully priced blue chip U.S. equities? Reminding it's in real trouble. <laughs> I'm going to get David Wu in real trouble here. We're not going there uh, this morning. What I see moving this morning is sterling uh, weaker. That's mostly strong dollar. What is David Wu's call on the brutality of a dollar move? I think, you know, listen, I mean, the, the fact is, you know what, you know, Unless the Fed is prepared to counterbalance this easing of monetary policy as a result of ECB and Q and basically Japanese are up to, you know, the dollar is going nowhere. And this is this is where the issue is for me. So I think from that point of view, again, I'm hoping to see some sick, some signs between now and Jackson Hole that the Fed actually taking very seriously that we've seen a massive easing of financial conditions in the U.S. in the last six weeks. We've seen data finally picking up the right thing for the Fed to do actually start hiking rates, as my colleague Ethan Harris is calling for. Well, they may do that, and it may be September or December, but is it one or done, or is there a new measured vector away from Stan Fisher's ultra-accommodation? I mean, that's an arch call. What does Ethan say? What do you say? I think, you know, I mean, you know, Ethan's calling for a hike in December, so I think that's certainly, I think, you know, it's definitely consistent with my view, but I also think that this is a, this is a place, you know, again, the big lesson from the global saving glut is that you, gotta, you cannot ignore asset prices. Because if you ignore asset prices, the consequences could be even more dire when the bubble finally bursts. And I think the question is whether the Fed actually has the understanding learned from the lesson 10 years ago to not right. to make the same mistake. But I mean, folks, this is important. You, you, the, when, you're, when you're in the grind of this every day, there's little headlines that stick out over 90 days. There was that headline X number of Bank of England meetings ago where Carney basically said, I'm sorry, there's no inflation. I'm looking at five-year, five-year forwards as one measure. I'm sorry, David, the market is clearly predicting disinflation and in some countries outright deflation. No, I, I agree. There's no question that this, you know, the big story of this year is that the market has totally lost confidence in central banks. And this is why, to me, Tom, we haven't talked about this. To me, the single biggest issue 
I think if I think about going to 2017, it's the fiscal policy. Because we know the monetary policy has not reached limit. The question is, are we going to see easier fiscal policy? And to me, the big question there is, will we see easier fiscal policy in the U.S.? And to me, I don't have to tell you because of the gridlock in Washington last basically six years, we had very tight fiscal policy. The question is whether the November elections is going to bring forward easier fiscal policy, because if that happens, you will definitely see a much more aggressive Fed in 2007. Doesn't that easier? um, I mean, the Wall Street Journal uh, with with David Harrison and Heather uh, Gillers in the Wall Street uh, Journal, localities opt for less debt over new infrastructure. I mean, it's. I don't want to say it's a policy of austerity. It's an ethos of, aus- of austerity, isn't it? Exactly. But you're going to hear from Trump today, okay? To me, you know, what people t- only, you know, the Republicans only pay lift servers to fiscal responsibility when the Democrats are in charge. If I think we get a clean sweep, okay, by either party, I think in, this, in November, you will probably see a very, very, I think, you know, significant loosening of fiscal policy next year. I mean, well, okay, you you say we're going to see a coordinated effort into January of fiscal policy. I took Amtrak this week. Full disclosure, folks, I had two wonderful trips on Amtrak all on time. They nailed it, absolutely nailed. You know, we all badmouth Joseph Boardman's Amtrak. Uh, Mr. Boardman's a lifelong rail guy. The CEO of Amtrak, I believe, is retiring this year or next year. The thing's a dump. I mean, there's no other way to put it. You're telling me that in January, the Congress of the United States is going to vote to do the airplanes, to do the roads, to do Amtrak, et cetera. I'm saying that, you know, what what matters much more than whether it's Trump or Clinton, it's going to be a question of whether a party can do a clean sweep in November, meaning winning the White House and winning both houses of Congress. Because once that happens, you yeah. will see a dramatic unleash of fiscal stimulus. You know, last week there was a report that shows the number of cars in the U.S. that are breaking, breaking down the road instead of record high because of how bad the roads are. I think that's weird is bipartisan support, which is, you know, you need to get some infrastructure spending going. When you look, David, at all of this and within the great distortion, and this goes back to my interview with Mr. Gross on Friday, he's talking about a financial repression of a decade. Let's shave off two years because maybe Bill said that two years ago. How do you get politicians or businesses to, quote, unquote, invest as they observe this rate market? I mean, the rate market is a fiction, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, think about this. I mean, rates are so low, and yet we're seeing basically negative, you know, growth rate in investment right now. So I think from that point of view, this is where, you know, again, I don't want to basically, you know, keep beating my head in on the table. I think the fiscal policy is going to be a huge thing. I mean, again, I mean, this is about, you know, this is about essentially the U.S., essentially um, picking up, you know, where the piece is and essentially putting some growth in the system. Well, to be clear here. Ethan Harris and you are looking for the Fed to finally act. Can they do it as a one-and-done language or rhetoric, or by definition, do they go back to a Greenspan measured approach where, you know, da-da-da-da-da? I think these guys, I think, honestly, these guys are, you know, these guys are nervous about the market. They don't, you know, and remember, I've been talking about global currency war. If they keep hiking rates steadily, the dollar is going to strengthen. It's going to be a big problem. So I think from that point of view, it's going to be opportunistic hike. I think this is what I would would say. I I will go. I like that phrase, an opportunistic hike. What we're observing is record highs in equities, bonds priced to perfection, a guy like Bill Gross saying buy stamps and oriental rugs and whatever intangibles he wants to do. I mean, Janet Yellen is working in an absolutely original milieu right now, isn't she? 
absolutely. But I think, you know, again, you know, you're the chairman of the Federal Reserve. You've got to have, you know, you've got to have guts. You've got to sometimes do the right thing. And I think from that point of view, doing the right thing may not be what's Is she going to speak market. about this at Jackson Hole? <laughs> you, I, you say Jackson Hole is important. I think it's very important. I think, you know, I personally, I think she has to basically, you know, I think, you know, convey the impression that the Fed cares about asset prices. I think that is <laughs> important. But, but I, I think it's critical that she's going to reframe that at Jackson Hole. And we come out of there with a September meeting. Would you suggest they will raise rates in September? I personally think that the probability is probably a bit higher than what the market's priced in. I think the markets are anywhere near where they are now, right. meaning the dollar is reasonably weak. The stock market's are all-time high. Bonyo's at this level. You right. have to believe that the Fed is going to basically uh, have to basically yeah. do something about it. David Wu with us with Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. But first, we welcome from London, Francine uh, Lacroix. Francine, where's Brexit? Over the weekend, are people riveted by the follow-on to Brexit, or is it like so June 23rd? So June 23rd. Now, of course, Tom, we need to know more about Brexit because we haven't really had any real data to support what yeah. Mark Carney has done, right? So we had sentiment uh, for for now. We wait more data. But look, you have Mark Carney. He's been doing a great <clears throat> job just because he's kept yeah. calm and carried on, as the UK, as the Brits would say. Right. And David, well, that was the theme here with this Carney was playing off a massively ex-ante theme of get out front of the data. That's pretty original, isn't it, for a central bank? Yeah, I think, you know, at the end of the day, he's supposed to be forward-looking, and especially given the fact that Sterling has been trading so peacefully like a baby, basically, in a crater over the last, essentially, six weeks, that gives me a lot of, basically, yeah. I think, you know, ammunition to actually really unleash the, uh, the QE. David, you're expecting a, a significantly weaker pound, right, to about 120, or is that too low? Will it stay around 125? And actually, will they benefit? The economy doesn't export that much. Let's be truthful. Exactly. But the economy could actually benefit from some import substitution, right? I mean, now, of course, you know, meaning the U.K. could actually start producing things that they currently import. However, I think that process is going to be very long drawn out. This is why I personally think that the improvement of the current account deficit is going to take a long time to come. But at the same time, I think, you know, in the near term, because the, you know, basically short sterling position is so crowded, I think it's going to take a while for sterling to actually start basically moving lower. So I think from that point of view, yes, lower sterling, but I think investors who are short that sterling right now have to be a bit more patient. How do you rate Mark Carney's plan so far? So UK government bonds rose, pushing five-year yields to a record low. Again, markets are still trying to digest what we heard from Mark Carney last Thursday. I think, you know, most interesting to me about Mark Carney is the fact, as you probably know, the guy doesn't care for negative interest rates. He has basically said that, you know, actually negative interest rates are not appropriate in the case of the UK because of the concerns that we talked about with respect to banks. So I think from that point of view, this 25 basis point cut, I think, could be, you know, it may be all you're going to get. And then QE, they've already bought, they already own about something like, you know, almost 40% of all outstanding government bonds. So I'm not sure there's that much more that Mark Carney is going to be able to do. This is why I think the next step is going to be fiscal policy. I, I agree with that in that he clearly alluded to that tone. But his language and tone as a unique guy running a bank was remarkable on the effect on savers. And what that means is the nominal rate and the real rate 
are not in any of the textbooks you had at Tufts or Columbia, are they? Yeah. You're, you're right. Except, Tom, you know what? But I think we're starting to see some perverse effect. I don't have to tell you every single day in the U.S. alone, you've got about 15,000 Americans reaching age of 65. If you look at consumer confidence number, people over the age of 65 have much lower confidence about the economic outlook than people much younger. One reason is because with interest rate at zero, these people are never going to be able to retire. Okay, we'll really? finance retired for the next 20 years. So I think the, the tragedy here could very well be that as interest rates fall, that people who are no. supposed to go out and spend money, basically seeing reduced saving rate, they're actually saving more and more. Francine, after that uh, astute observation by Dr. Wu, that those of a fossil uh, level will never be able to retire, I can assure you, Francine, you with younger children, that's not true. The reason older people can't retire is a cost of summer camp. That's why they, just so you know, Francine, that's why they can't retire. Yeah, but you know what? It, it goes back also to sentiment, right? You feel you can't retire, but Tom, I'm sure you probably you can at some point. David, does it go back to the fact that it's not really hard data that we need to look at Brexit? It's the feeling that people won't spend it. Even if we end up with helicopter money in the UK, you need to be reassured about what's coming up in order you know, for you to spend that money. That's exactly it. I mean, even if they were to cut taxes tomorrow, you know, because Ricardo equivalents, people actually might just basically end up basically saving more. So I think from that point of view, I think you're absolutely exactly right. I think, you know, in some sense, this is why we're only in the first inning of this basically Brexit business. And then it's going to be very tumultuous. I think the only thing I would say, you know, about Brexit, and I just want to take us a little bit away from what's happening in the Please. UK, is, you know what, if you think about this, if, the one, if there's one thing Brexit so far has accomplished, is the fact that it's legitimized these anti-globalization concerns. Before Brexit, if you're a Frenchman, a Swede, or an Italian, you were embarrassed to admit that you would even consider voting for Le, Pen, Le Front National or the, or the Free Democrats, or for that matter, the Five Star Party, because mm. you said that they were racist and xenophobic. Right. But after Brexit, you said, well, it's not possible that 52% of British voters are all basically racist and xenophobic. I think from that point of view, the, the, the most important consequence of Brexit is going to basically basically help the French parties in terms of building on anti-globalization momentum. David Wu, thank you so much. Luigi Zingales with us with the Booth School of Chicago. You just wrote an essay, which I thought was brilliant. I believe there's a follow-on essay on Italian banks and how we unwind bad banks. I've never bought for a moment Good or bad banks? How much of a fiction is the idea of a bad bank? I don't think it's a fiction that a bank bank can help. The question is at what price? In Italy, the current narrative is that uh, Italian loans are more secure, uh, there, there is more property behind, uh, and uh, non-performing loan should not be valued as low as in other countries because eventually the money will be paid. And part of this narrative is linked to the history of uh, Banco di Napoli that in the mid-90s went bust, and uh, the current narrative is that uh, m most of the money eventually was repaid. So I decided actually to look for um, the, the real history. There is a, a recent book that came out uh, called uh, The Miracle Bad Bank that helped me collect some of this information. And I did a simple uh, net present value analysis. And first of all, um, it's true that after 20 years, 
the bad bank of the Banco di Napoli recover most of the money that uh, paid for. But uh, first of all, is most of the money they paid for not most of the original value of the loans? And second, it took 20 years and a lot of uh, money uh, to manage that. So once you take this into account, um, the net present value of those loans depends, not surprisingly, or what risk premium you attach to uh, the, the, the valuation. If you attach a risk premium of uh, 500 basis points over the, the T-bond, the net present value um, as of uh, the beginning of the, of the period was 22 cents on the dollar, so mm -hmm. a pretty low valuation. I mean, Francine, forget, that's stunning, 22 cents uh, on the dollar. It is, but Luigi, you know, forget being repaid in 20 years. It, at this rate, it'll probably take 20 years to fix the banks. Why are they taking their sweet time as fears for the Italian banking sector are increasing by the day? Uh, I think that uh, if you are a banker, you hope for things to sort of uh, slow down and uh, eventually you're going to be fine um, if everything works out. And the problem is eventually. And in the meantime, uh, you don't land and uh, the economy doesn't grow. So I think that this is where there is a tension between the perspective of the banker and the perspective of, uh, of the government and the country overall. What's a prescription? How do we fix this faster than the current regulation and the current politicians want it to? So the situation looks remarkably similar to the one in the uh, United States in 2008, because back then there was a lot of uncertainties about the value of the subprime mortgages, and that uncertainty was paralyzing the market, was uh, uh, impairing the banks, uh, was making it difficult to land, was really uh, freezing the economy. And um, at the time, uh, I was a, a big supporter of doing sort of a debt for equity swap and, and get uh, through and, and resolve. And what the government ended up doing, not the initial proposal, but uh, the second version of TARP, was an equity injection uh, that um, exposed worked out uh, fairly well. Now, in, in Italy, I think the debt for equity swap is made uh, uh, very difficult by the fact that uh, banks sold a lot of their bonds to retail investors. And so if we were to do that, there would be a, a huge repercussion on the portfolio of uh, households. Mm -hmm. And also probably this will trigger a bank run. So I think the only sort of uh, uh, alternative is to do a version of TOP. Luigi Zingales with us with Booth School of Chicago, author of one of my books of the summer, A Capitalism for the People, and also Saving Capitalism from the Capitalists, a great book uh, with Raghu Rajan. How's he done as, as central bank head of India? I mean, you're a professor in Chicago. One day you guys wake up, should we see the Cubs? The next day you wake up, you go, let's see the White Sox today. And all of a sudden, Raghu is the head of the Indian bank. That was quite a challenge. It was a, a great challenge. Of course, I am biased because I'm a friend yeah, of you're biased, Raghu, sure. but, but I think he did a fantastic job. Uh, he was able to uh, keep down inflation, uh, growth went up, and also he fought a, a very good fight in trying to clean up uh, uh, the banking sector from a lot of uh, crony loans at a time where the economy was expanding. I think this is what well, uh, I wish Italy had done at the right time. Well, that's right where I wanted to go because of you and Francine. Folks, Francine Lacroix, many of you will think she's British. <laughs> she's not British. 
She's a soulmate of Luigi Zingales. Would you explain to me how we can have Zingales European capitalism if we can't have mergers of banks? It's unthinkable that Deutsche Bank and Unicredit would mate, right? Uh, yes, I think it is unthinkable, even more so after the financial crisis, because uh, uh, remember, Unicredit did uh, go through a series of acquisitions, one of which was in Germany. So there was a, a beginning of a consolidation of the banking sector in Europe. But during the crisis, there was a huge pressure from the local central banks not to reallocate liquidity across countries. So this is the tension of Europe. On the one hand, we pretend to be a common market. On the other hand, the political influence is still divided by sort of uh, borders. Luigi, I mean, the problem is that you also have one regulator. Right. And I understand. And Tom loves to beat up on Italian banks or European oh, banks in general. And he please. says, well, why don't you just merge? Why don't you? And and it would make more sense, except if you're trying to de-risk the system, then the last thing you want is a bigger bank. And it's two banks merging to make a bigger one. Actually, I am with Tom here. If the merger were yes. across borders, <laughs> that would be good. The problem that uh, you are right, if the merger takes place within Italy, then you're basically putting together two sort of uh, uh, weak candidates, and it's not obvious that uh, they make a good one. But if you were to allow uh, cross-border mergers within Europe, we shouldn't even call them cross-border, we should call it within-Europe merger, uh, is, uh, then, then the, 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 the problem would be different and I think that uh, is a potential solution. It's a potential solution for the bank that's going under, but for the healthy bank that would be buying something, it always spells bad news. Is that a fair assumption? If you look at RBS and ABN AMRO, this is kind of what happened. Uh, yes, but in that particular case, uh, the acquisition took place at super inflated prices. I think now the problem is that prices are too low, not too high. So I think that there, there are definitely uh, benefits from cross-border mergers in terms of uh, cost savings uh, and efficiencies. And, and also, I think that uh, we need to bring better information system in Italy. One of the problems with a non-performing loan is when you try to get the information behind it, it's not properly accounted for, it's not easy to uh, observe via computer and so on and so forth. Yep. So I think that uh, cross-border mergers will bring better technology and, uh, and better banks. Luigi, there's something, and Tom, I don't know if you know this, but you talk a lot, we talk a lot about the fact that Italian households are sitting on a lot of the subordinated bonds. Luigi, you have to make me understand, because I had, you know, even members of my family being called up by their bank that they trusted as, as you know, 18 months ago saying you should buy this stuff because it's good stuff. How is that even possible from a regulation point of view? I think that uh, there was a benign neglect to say, that, to be very uh, charitable, a benign neglect of the regulators who saw this as a way to rescue the banking sector in a difficult situation. So after the 2008 financial crisis, the Italian banks were uh, relatively resilient precisely because their access to uh, individual uh, investors. When, when the um, commercial paper market in the United States shut down, um, banks that were funding themselves in, the, in, in that market started to fund themselves yeah. with retail investors. And the, the, the regulators said, oh, this is the, um, the, the less of two evils, without realizing that uh, it will create a lot of problems down the line. And I think that the biggest mistake, honestly, th that was a big mistake, but the biggest mistake is not fully understand when the uh, bail-in rule was uh, initially proposed, what would be the consequences for 
Italy and trying to sort of either negotiate a, a delay of introduction in Italy or do a major sort of campaign of awareness, changing the system and preparing for this moment. So we arrive to this completely unprepared. Well, okay, we're completely unprepared. You're one of the world's experts on this. Whether it's a bail-in, a bailout, this word crammed out where they force it, uh, in Italy's case, on the retail investors, where is the institution that's going to do the Zingalo's plan? I don't see it evident. No one, the elites of Europe don't want to clear the market. Am I right on that? I'm not so sure that the elite of Europe don't want. I think that uh, if uh, Renzi tomorrow were to call uh, the ESF uh, uh, fund, uh, the European fund, and say you should recapitalize the Italian banks, I think this uh, this will be possible. Uh, but uh, for Renzi, it would be a big political cost. So he's trying to uh, delay that, and uh, at least until past the referendum. And the question whether he, sort of the banks will uh, leave him enough time. There is always a tension between uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, the political timing and the financial timing. What about the financial timing of some of the German banks? Are they even in a worse position than the Italians? You know, I don't know. In a sense, if you look at the stock market, clearly uh, Deutsche trades at very low value. That Im basically implies that uh, uh, liabilities are bigger than assets. It trades at option values. Uh, I don't know enough about what they have inside to, to determine. The, the rhetoric in Italy is that they are in much worse shape than the Italian banks. Um, I don't know, and honestly, I don't really care because uh, uh, it is possible to do a bail-in of Deutsche Bank. It's, not, it's, it's possible, but much more politically costly to do a bail-in of Montepaschi or some other Italian banks. Luigi Zagalas, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated this morning with Booth School Chicago. Francine Lacroix in London. I'm Tom Keene, New York. Robert Cinch with us with Amherst Pierpont. And part of the reason Francine have been ornery today is after popular acclaim, one of my children said, Dad, you're going to die. So I'm on a diet. And my wow. first thing, Francine, I know it's on Italian. I'm cutting out bread. Wow. Which I know is. Well, I'm miserable. I'm eating <laughs> vegetables. And thank you to Bloomberg for their great choice of vegetables. The reason I am is because Bob Cinch is cut and chiseled. How many miles a week do you bicycle? Uh, something between uh, 25 and 50. 25 miles, not kilometers, miles. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Do you go with, we had a raging debate this weekend up in western New England. Do you bicycle with the traffic or against the traffic? I want to see them. I, I bicycle with the traffic, actually. And you're not worried about that? So far, so good. Francine, what do they do in Europe? Do they bicycle with the traffic? I mean, they bicycle. It feels like the whole of London is just a, a huge bicycle lane because our previous mayor, one Boris Johnson, actually put in so many bicycle lanes that there's traffic everywhere. I think they bicycle with the traffic. They go with. You, right. you, and you do that, Bob. Said, Seriously, as a pro-bicycle guy. Yeah, I do. And, uh, you know, you, you, you just hope that, uh, look, these are pretty rural roads up in northern uh, Connecticut into lower uh, New York State. So yeah. um, usually people are pretty good. Okay. Well, let's, do, let's get to economics. Finance. Bob Cinch with your bicycling tip. And by the way, uh, seriously, all the national studies say that uh, Mr. Cinch is correct about bicycling. There's actually serious laws about it. 
uh, as well. Bob, there is a law also that this is the craziest August since time began. When you walk in and you look at your Bloomberg, what's the first thing you look at in the Bob Cinch world? You know, I think it's this continued skepticism about the Fed. Um, you know, these are some pretty solid employment numbers. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of think about levels every now and then. If you, if you went to, to, you know, monetary economists, economists in general, and said, okay, so the unemployment rate's down below 5%, uh, the economy's performing reasonably well, um, where do you think the real Fed funds rate should be? And I, I would guess most people would say it should be zero or slightly positive after adjustment for inflation. Instead, we have a real Fed funds rate that's somewhere around minus 1%, give or take a little. So I think the Fed would really like to get interest rates higher. Um, they're just afraid of getting from here to there. And, and uh, I'm wondering whether they, they actually might be more inclined to go in September because, you know, they, they keep wanting to hike rates, and then they get a bad piece of information and they back away. Yeah, but, but you mentioned in your research note with Amherst Pierpont, the, the Atlanta GDP now crystal ball, I'm sorry, Bob, it's a jump condition it, it, it is of optimism. It, it has jumped. Now, I think part of that is, as my colleague Steve Stanley would point out, was the last GDP report, which showed such a big drop in inventories. And so you had such a, a big inventory drawdown in the second quarter. I think that's a big part of why the, the now cast as the uh, uh, GDP forecast from the Atlanta Fed has jumped so much. But nonetheless, it does suggest that there's the potential that when the year is done, we're going to have another 2% year or so. And with potential GDP growth, I think sub 1.5%, that's not bad. And again, I think the Fed needs to get back to having a, a real Fed funds rate at least at zero, which would imply something around 1.5% for the funds rate. But, Bob, would they actually surprise the market? So let's say they move in September, but the markets aren't pricing in a move in September. Would they, you know, surprise the market, or is that too dangerous? Well, the market's not pricing in a move until, you know, probably I retire. But uh, <laughs> Or I get back off my vegetable <laughs> diet. diet yeah. <laughs> but, but I think that, you know, from the Fed's point of view, they've been saying, look, uh, September's not off the table. You know, granted, as my colleague Steve would say, they have to run the table on good data. But, you know, they they for them to wait until December, the odds that something bad or something's going to go wrong between now and December is pretty high just on a random event. And I'm wondering whether if they get the chance, you know, if you get a, let's say you get a payroll gain of 100,000 or, or, or so even in August, you've got a three-month moving average over 200,000. That they just say, look, we need to get rates higher. We won the market. We wanted to raise rates at least once this year. Why not do it when the markets are enabling you to do it as opposed to taking the risk that you wait till the end of the year? Now, that's the case for hiking in September. The, hike, the, the, the case against it is this is the most dovish Fed in the history of mankind. So right. um, they, they, they like to back away whenever they can. But I'm, I'm wondering whether they... But, Bob, there's also the presidential election. So here in the U.K., you know, we're looking through inflation. Does it mean that Janet Yellen looks through the risks of a Donald Trump presidency? Well, I think most people seem to be looking through that risk these days. Look, I, I think September is fair game. Uh, for the for the Fed to do something, you know, waiting closer to the election, but but I think a lot of this this uh, this thought process about elections and Fed action, you know, it's 30 or 40 years old. We got to let it go. Granted, they won't do anything in the month of the election or right before the election, but I think September um, is plenty of time, particularly when when the level of rates is so low. 
Bob, I look at the currency pairs. You've done brilliant work on sterling away from the conventional analysis. How do you analyze sterling right now? Do you go to Swissy or to yen and renminbi as you have? Well, you know, the Bank of England puts out a whole set of, of currency indexes, and, and they have one that's called the Broad Trade-Weighted Index for Sterling, um, and that includes sterling against on a trade-weighted basis against a whole variety of currencies, including emerging currencies. <clears throat> and that's down, you know, about 7 or 8% uh, since Brexit. And that's a, that's a pretty sharp easing of monetary conditions as we would analyze those things. So I think that that they've gotten mm-hmm. a significant easing from the from the external side. They've now gotten a significant easing from the internal side. Um, I think the economy may hold up better than people think uh, as we go through the course of this right. year. And we're starting to that's starting to filter into a few dollar cable, looking at consensus and going eh, maybe not. Emerging markets. It's been percolating. I would say the last two weeks on surveillance. Mm-hmm. Are there emerging market currencies that show true EM strength? Well, you know, I think, um, you know, Mexican peso is still very much tied to oil, uh, but that's starting to stabilize. Uh, Brazilian currency starting to stabilize. There are some, some modest signs, but again, I think that, that there are two things operating here. One, um, signs that global growth might be picking up as helping commodity prices, and that's very important for emerging currencies. Yeah, yeah. The other side of that is the potential for a Fed rate hike later this year, which is, I think, creating a little bit of, of uh, tentative activity in those markets. So I, I, I think in, in general, we would expect the dollar to move higher as we go forward. Um, and if that's the case, I think it'll creep up against emerging currencies also. Bob Cinch with us uh, on currencies, commodities, Bicycles, diets, any any other wisdom on staying cut and chiseled? <laughs> no, those fifty days are... mi- fifty miles a week will do it. That will do it. It'll help. It yeah. won't do it. It'll help. But uh, yeah, cut and chiseled were a few decades ago. Bob Cinch uh, with Amherst Pierpont. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg.